that people said were the top five questions they were asking and needed an answer for. And one was, will there be world peace? And at the time also uh, on Yahoo, a thing called Yahoo Answers, there was a lot of people that set forth a number of answers to this question, will there be world peace? And one of the answers was only if human beings get lobotomized and finally merge into one hive mind. Another answer was uh, the only time there will be world peace is when mankind has been completely wiped off the face of the planet. Another person said, in your dreams. <laughs> Another said, without wars and fighting and all the thrilling disasters happening every day, the world would be boring. I would propose one of the answers given by those in the know today would, would be something like this. Yes, we will have world peace when we allow an elite group of globalists to control all of human affairs. Signed, Psychopaths Incorporated. And uh, one of the questions given on Yahoo Answers also is actually the true answer to this question. Yes, there will be world peace when the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, returns to this earth. And that's really the answer to that question. There's much talk today about civil war. This is actually a photograph from the time of the Civil War in the, in the wake of the Civil War with dead bodies there littering the landscape. And in case you didn't know, the Civil War was the bloodiest war in American history. 620 million human beings. The actual total Death toll from all other wars other than that one's only about 700 million. So we're almost approaching the total of all other wars when you talk about the Civil War. And um, Lincoln was known to have said, a famous quote by him, he said, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And um, as, as you may be aware, God has used warfare in various situations and circumstances. War has not been his will from the beginning. Of course, he created Adam and Eve perfectly and in harmony with his will, and there was never meant to be war. But God is in the business of bringing good things out of bad things, and he did bring some good things out of our revolutionary war that established this great nation on its principles we believe in and revere and preserved this nation and abolished slavery through the bloodiest war that we ever had. We've seen civil war raging in the Christian faith. We've, we've seen this for decades and decades spiritual and legal warfare taking place in Christian denominations, and I dare say that the Adventist church is not immune to that. And it's resulted in the preservation of some person's faith, biblical faith, and the, uh, the uh, destruction of some 
churches and denominations and the decline of Christianity, such as you even have books titled The Decline of Christianity, as a result of this civil war raging amongst Christians. There's been a lot of talk about World War III recently. If you've been uh, listening to the news, you've probably heard this. You've been, you know, and haven't heard this type of talk for the longest time. You heard about it back during the Cold War. If you're old enough to remember the Cold War, yes, it was bandied about occasionally, the subject of the World War III, but more so than any time I can remember, more recently, talk about World War III. The famous scientist Carl Sagan commented on this little blue dot. Perhaps you're familiar with his commentary. I don't know, but this was taken by the famous Voyager, which he had a part in helping with, that sailed out beyond the, the solar system into the cosmos and took a picture looking back at our planet. And that's what that is there, this small, pale blue dot. And, of course, uh, Sagan, for the most part, was pretty atheistic. He has some... Uh, tinges of Hinduism about him, but mostly atheistic, and his commentary was, there we are, this pale blue dot in a vast ocean of indifference that has no care at all for us. And his statistical commentary was that chances are we are going to exterminate ourselves with nuclear annihilation. And then he said, but chances are the universe is filled with other inhabited planets, but since we are setting this statistical standard, chances are they may also all commit nuclear annihilation once they get to that point. What a grim view of the universe and our place in it. There has actually only been about 268 actual years on this earth that have been war-free. And uh, uh, the longest stretch was during this Pax Romana, which you just saw there, the Pax Romana, 100 years of, of peace on earth that we know of. And uh, what was the reason for that? Well, it was a reason because of the greatest, most formidable war machine developed up until that time, probably, and the threat of warfare and the threat of death uh, brought humanity into a situation of peace. So this is a great irony that peace on planet Earth is brought about through the threat of war and the threat of violence and this is what we see as uh, our condition to some extent right now, peace through strength, which is really the peace of the threat of war and violence. I took a course many years ago, back when I was doing my bachelor's work, back in the Mesolithic era, or, or was that, was that uh, the Neolithic, I can't remember. Anyway, they say if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there, and I don't remember much, as I've mentioned before. But this was probably in the 70s. Anyway, I took this course on the history of modern warfare, and I learned there that the vast majority of 
revolutions end up bringing in a worse regime than they overthrow. Here you have the greatest example of that, the French Revolution. What a horrifying reign of terror it brought in. The only possible exception would be the American Revolution, obviously, uh, bringing about the unique American experiment that we know as the United States of America. Now here's a smiling fellow. Anybody know what uh, is causing him to be so cheery and chipper? What's that? Sunshine, yes, he's in a sunshiny place. It's in the uh, southwest of the United States. He is actually holding the core to the plutonium bomb fat man that was dropped on Nagasaki. And that's what was bringing that smile on his face, I suppose. I don't know, other than the fact that he was part of that team. But fat man bomb, fat man bomb dropped on Nagasaki and uh, resulting in thousands of deaths. And uh, interestingly enough, there was a fellow in my class, the History of Modern War, way back then, who actually claimed to have been on the boxcar plane that dropped that bottom on Nagasaki. And he was telling us about his experience. And he said they put the pedal to the metal as soon as they dropped that bomb. They had to get as fast and as far away from it as they possibly could, but it seemed like they weren't far away enough from it. And the shock wave they thought was going to knock them out of the sky. There is consequences to the use of violence, obviously. And more often than not, when war kicks off, it just brings about even worse circumstances and more horrific consequences. Remember uh, those of you who live in the 50s? Do you remember when they said, okay, we're having an air raid drill, a bomb drill, get under your desks? And um, as if that was going to help any. <laughs> it's the stupidest thing in the world. That was not going <laughs> to... Yeah, that's where, I guess they know how to find them. You look for the bodies of the children under their desks. Yeah, that's where you find them, yeah. No, so, um, well, it's comic sometimes. It's just tragic comedy that we deal with here. But actually, if you go back further, war began all the way back in heaven, we know this. Revelation 12, 7 says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels. War began not even just during that time when there was rebellion, but it began in the mind of the highest of angelic beings, perhaps the first of all creatures ever brought into existence in the universe. And that war began in his mind. And he ended up becoming the father of murder and warfare and violence and sin, the source of all of it. In the very end, the rebellion began and war, the first war began right in the very presence of God, the creator of the universe. It's mind-boggling, it's, it's really difficult to understand, but that's the nature of what we're dealing with. And then, of course, he planted the seeds of this rebellion in the hearts of Adam and Eve and Virtually right away, instantaneously, if you will, 
uh, they began to war amongst each other, with each other, and with God, and be in conflict with one another and with God, until, in short order, their firstborn son murdered his brother. Unbelievable. And this is a testimony to how horrific sin is and what it does to human beings. This great controversy that we are involved in. Here in Genesis 6, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, just prior to the flood, of course, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And, um, and that's why God had to wipe out the entire human race, minus eight people, because of how horrific and terrible sin had gotten a hold of their inclinations and their hearts and their minds. And this, once again, is where the great controversy really is, a battlefield of the mind, where Christ and Satan are waging war for humanity's allegiance taking place in each one of our minds. This is where the battle really is, the warfare really is, leading to all other warfares, really. World War II, oh my, imagine that. We still have some people from the great generation among us, and... Um, that survived this great conflict, World War II, unbelievably devastating war, 80 million casualties, boggles the mind, 80 million casualties. Dwight Eisenhower said, in the wake of that, we have become a race of intellectual giants and moral pygmies. Moral pygmies. When World War I ended, they thought, well, we're not going to have another one of these. Well, it was in short order that we did. And, uh, and then, of course, communism took over. And there's uh, significant evidence to support the fact that Stalin may have actually been responsible for the death of more people than Hitler. Think about that. No sooner than we topple the man that we think of as being the greatest psychopath of modern history and we put in his place, the entire Soviet bloc and all of that, a man who, for all intents and purposes, may have actually been worse. Think about that. And communism, here you have uh, skeletons left from the killing fields in Cambodia and the death toll of communism, atheistic communism, may have even approached 150 million over the span of 100 years. So don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is responsible for all the terrible things on earth. <laughs> Atheism has as well, for sure, and, and um, has quite a death toll. Here I am at the Berlin Wall 
And we thought when the Berlin Wall fell that that was going to take care of a lot of stuff. Surely peace and prosperity is going to come in, but uh, unfortunately we're still struggling with um, war. Look at the war in Ukraine with Russia, and but there I am leaning against part of what's left of the Berlin Wall. Back in 1983, Psychology Today, in October of 1983, they, in the midst of the Cold War, they asked questions in a poll. And they said, if we could wipe out 100 million Soviets, would you do it? 15% of Americans responded yes. Yes, let's just get rid of 100 million people. Maybe that'll fix the problem. They asked, if we could sacrifice 25 to 50 million to solve the problem, would you do it? 26% said yes. They said, if we, could, if, you could, if we could secretly devise a special button that if you pushed it, you could eliminate any person of your choosing without any repercussions. Guess what? 69% of men said yes, and 59% of women said yes. The majority of men and women said yes. I have somebody in mind right now. Of course, if you could invent such a device, would the human race last, is the question. Because you might be on somebody else's list, probably you are, and eventually everybody be gone. This is from the movie The First Man, about the landing on the moon, first landing on the moon. And uh, uh, when we landed, we landed, uh, those of you who might remember it, uh, 1969, 53 years ago. And when we landed, we landed on a thing called the Sea of Tranquility. The Sea of Tranquility. Billy Graham commented, he said, the only reason it's called the Sea of Tranquility is because no man has ever been there. And of course, now there has been one. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, Jesus said. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not as the world gives. Humanity is desperately seeking worldly means to bring about peace. The world's view of peace is first force your enemies to capitulate. Force them to lay down your ar their arms and then there will be peace. Jesus' disciples were hoping about this, of course, to overthrow the Roman Empire through military means, and then that would be what would bring in peace, and then they would sit as prime ministers with Jesus there in the kingdom overseeing what they had toppled through violence. Today we have various factions looking for violent overthrow of our society and so on. Uh, Antifa, that seems to use anti-fascists that seem to use fascist means to <laughs> fight the fascists, whoever they are, and also seem to have their roots in the uh, anarchist movement. The anarchists, of course, 
had, were really communists to a large extent. They wanted to overthrow the whole order of our society and civilization, and out of the ashes would rise a communist utopia. And, um, but you, you ha also have persons who, who uh, want to uh, bring about uh, a new order of things, a, a Christian utopia, a theocratic utopia, which they would compel and impel and force people to be moral and virtuous. And uh, almost violently sometimes, it seems, but uh, based upon principles that, that just fly in the face of our Constitution and the like, You'll notice, I don't know if this works. You see this, what this guy's wearing right there? It says, uh, this is a quote supposedly by George Washington. It is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and the Bible. Guess what? George Washington never said that. There's a thing called the Black Robe Regiment. A group of ministers are advocating uh, ministers to take up a militant uh, political cause, the cause of bringing God back to this nation and making this a nation under God again, and uh, taking their, their cue from a minister in the revolution who supposedly got up to preach one day with his black robe on, and then threw off his black robe, and underneath it was his militia garb, and he gave a call to arms to all the men in his congregation to stand up and take up arms against the British. And uh, here it says, bringing back the Black Robe Regiment. Well, guess what? He was the only one that did that, probably. And there was no Black Robe Regiment ever, but they're bringing it back. Theocracy was the thing that our founding fathers fought most vigorously, and most people are not aware of that. It was the theocrats, congregationalists, and the like. And uh, uh, who uh, Episcopalians, you know, so on, who uh, were the Anglicans who wanted to take over the government and, and make it into a theocracy. Thomas Jefferson, his words in bold at the bottom are written around a Jefferson Rotunda memorial, but most people are not familiar with what precedes that. And he said, the clergy believe that any portion of power confided to me will be exerted in opposition to their schemes, and they believe rightly. For I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. And uh, we are thankful for men like Jefferson who stood up to the theocrats. Here I am in the National Archives where I was filming a, a uh, documentary many years ago. When was it? I think it might have been 2004 or something like that. There to my right is the Declaration of Independence, and directly behind me is the Constitution, and to my left is the Bill of Rights, all of which guarantee religious freedom and basically prohibit a theocracy in this country. Declaration, of course, guaranteeing liberty. 
and that would include liberty of religion and rights of conscience. The Constitution, not mentioning God, but having in its clause the prohibition about anybody having a test, a religious test for holding public office, which means you cannot have a Christian government if there is no test which says you have to be a Christian to hold office. And of course, the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, basically making the government and the civil power neutral in religious matters. And um, here I am where those, some of those documents were signed right there near my, kind of my hometown. I grew up in Valley Forge, actually, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, where George Washington was commissioned as the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, where they signed the Declaration of Independence and ratified the Constitution, if I'm not mistaken. Here I am in the Capitol building with the famous Barry Black, also filming the documentary. Taking a little detour here. Um, and so we're standing actually in front of a statue of one of the most famous of all Americans, his name's Roger Williams. And that statue has been relegated to a hallway outside the Senate chambers, which is a restricted area of the Capitol. I had to twist Barry Black's arm to bring me back there to do this filming. Because ordinarily, those on tour are not allowed to go back there, and we went back there. And the reason they stuck that statue of one of the most famous of all American heroes back there in the hallway is because the base of that statue is the most radioactive thing in the Capitol building. It's red marble, and it, it actually is quite radioactive. And they didn't find out about the radioactivity until a long time. If you stood around that all day, you'd probably be violating EPA standards, so they put it in a hallway where people are just walking past it all day. But there we are in front of the statue of Roger Williams, uh, one of the most heroic Americans that ever lived, who stood up to the theocracy in Massachusetts, and um, standing up for Native American rights and against forcibly under threat of violence converting them. They were violently converting them to Christianity at the time. And he said, no, that is against the will of God and of Christ. And as a result, they threatened him with everything they could and were finally preparing to exile him and sail him back across the Atlantic when in the middle of one of the more severe winters in New England, he fled into the wilderness 55 miles in deep snow drifts with a case of pneumonia. The Wampanoag Indians took him in and gave him shelter, and he humorously said, the ravens fed me. He was a virtual voice in the wilderness, for sure, in the early stages of America, standing up for religious rights. He was fluent in about seven different native dialects, wrote a whole book on it. It was a bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic, interestingly enough. And um, 
Here we have from Rhode Island's charter, the first charter, make provision for religious freedom. Of course, you know, the first Seventh-day Baptist church was in Rhode Island, first Quaker church, I think, first Jewish synagogue. Uh, no person within the said colony at any time hereafter shall be in any wise molested, punished, disquieted, or called in question for any differences in opinion in matters of religion. It does not actually disturb the peace of our said colony. That all and every person and person may from time to time and all times hereafter freely and fully have and enjoy his own and their judgments and consciences in matters of religious concernments throughout the tract of land heretofore mentioned, they behaving themselves peaceably and quietly, not using this liberty to licentiousness and profaneness, nor to the civil injury or outward disturbance of others. And there you have it. Basically, it's a separation between the two tables of the law, our duty to God, uh, having to do with our own individual conscience and the civil power has no right to tamper with that. But in regards to our relationship to our fellow man, of course, the civil power does have the right to do that. Now, here I am standing by a big hole in the ground. You know what this is? That's ground zero. That's what ground zero looked like in 2004. Or still just a big hole in the ground they were working on. And uh, in case you didn't know, 9-11 was made possible by a theocracy that gave shelter and support to Al-Qaeda, the theocracy of the Taliban, which would have regular public executions for religious means and public beatings and whippings for over religious means and so on. And that is what produced... 9-11, a theocracy. So theocracies, as we know, uh, the, the union of church and state is one of the most volatile and dangerous of all combinations and can result in terrifying consequences. Now here, interestingly enough, well, here we are, we're past the noontime hour. So um, as I... And want to say, I came here to preach and you came to listen. If you finish before me, just let me know. And, and uh, so sometimes I get going a little longer than I anticipate. I try to keep it to a half hour, but invariably it goes longer than that for some reason. I can't help myself. And uh, this, have you ever seen a picture of this? This is the cathedral. This is the Cathedral of the Russian Armed Forces, which was finished in 2020 at the 75th anniversary of Russia winning the war against Germany. It's otherwise known as the Cathedral of the Resurrection of Christ. It's a religious war memorial. And outside, you'll have one of the saints of the Orthodox faith, Alexander Nevsky, here he's got his sword drawn. There, as he looks at the cathedral, and you see here these stairs right there. Those are built from melted German tanks. So that when you stride up these steps to the cathedral, you are stepping upon the war armaments of the enemy. And uh, inside, the, the largest icon there over the altar is actually built out of 
planks from cannon uh, cannon carriers. Uh, what do you call those anyway? Um, carriages, cannon carriages from the 18th century. And this is at the dedication, and you'll see all those people lining up in the back with the same kind of color. Those are all soldiers. Those are all soldiers here for the dedication of this Christian church. And this icon purports to have been delivered by Jesus himself miraculously to King Abgar V. And there is the Soviet, the, sorry, the Russian Minister of Defense standing right next to this icon of Jesus. I can't help but think about Constantine. I don't know about you. Constantine, the first one to take up the sword in the name of Christ and to make Jesus a god of war. Isn't it interesting how Soviet Russia took a turn from atheism now to Orthodox religion and taking on the trappings of the Orthodox Christian faith in regards to their war um, intent. The Constantine, of course, we know uh, he, his, his mother would go to the Holy Land and get what purported to be the nails that nailed Jesus to the tree. And she brought them back for Constantine, her son, and her son said, oh, this is marvelous, this is great, I know what to do with these. And he took them and he fashioned them into bridles for his war horse and attached them to his war helmet as a talisman of warfare. Well, let's move to a different subject here. Um, we live in a society filled with moral outrage and threats of violence. I don't know if you've read comments online in, in uh, websites that aren't too well monitored or whatever, but you will see every kind of moral outrage and threats of violence imaginable, and people do it anonymously, you see. They can just do it. They have their little, um, um, their names that aren't their names, or they have anonymity and so on, and they, they just, um, and, and psychological studies have shown that this type of outrage is often nothing more than an effort to appear morally worthy and to hide one's own culpability. And we know that from what Jesus said. You've got a railroad tie in your own eye and you're trying to pick the speck of dust out of somebody's, uh, somebody else's eye. And of course, the old adage, when you're pointing a finger at somebody, you've got three pointing back at yourself. Peace. Don't we all want peace? We all want peace. And historically, you know, we, we've sought that through the pursuit of happiness, trying to have the American dream, the two-car garage. I was just visiting with some folk that finally built their own little house to, like, Habitat for Humanity kind of stuff. It was a, it was a very grueling effort, and they finally moved into their domicile in there. And he said, look behind this door, and I look, oh, it's a two-car garage. He's arrived. They've arrived. And, um, but, uh, you know, we know from the tabloids that even the rich, wealth, wealthy, and famous don't have peace. That's probably the reason that poor folk love to buy these things. They say, look, if they have it rough, then maybe even, maybe I'm not so bad. And, um, 
Well, there I am back during the uh, psychotropic wars, the psychedelic wars, back in the 70s, which I was a casualty for a while. I had psychotropic brain damage. And um, when I was first baptized in the Adventist church, there was a missionary uh, who'd been in Nepal for many years. And he walked up to me afterwards and he said, you know, you have the look of a minister about you. And I thought to myself, I was just too shy, I thought to myself, man, you've got to be out of your mind. Man, I, I'm a brain-damaged hippie in a cheap-fitting suit. Man, you've got to, and I guess he saw something I didn't, but anyway, what great irony, this fellow used to be a war-protesting, make-love-not-war, Vietnam war-protesting, long-haired, pot-smoking hippie, ended up supervising the largest incarcerated veterans chapter in all the state of Ohio and working with men who had still had terrible cases of PTSD after 40 years, even having nightmares and the like and flipping out if you have a trigger like a fire alarm going off, or a helicopter going overhead, and who had committed some atrocious things when they got out of the war and ended up locked up, some of them with life sentences. But I tried finding peace in all sorts of ways. And uh, drugs did not do it, that's for darn sure. It did just the opposite. I tried meditating at the Tibetan Buddhist commune for a while, and that didn't do it. It lowered my metabolism. I'll give them that. But it did not bring inner peace, no. There I am, the year I got, quote, saved, 1983. And I'm in the lower right there, trying to find peace through martial arts. A hard style kung fu. And the guy right behind me, Puerto Rican fellow from Jersey City, he was Baptist, and he witnessed to me a lot, along with a host of other people. Harmonic convergence of Christians came into my life, and God plucked me like a brand out of the fire. But uh, man, he didn't really fully understand Scripture either. And one day he said to me after I gave my heart to Jesus, You know, Vic, I, I figure the way I figure in the last days when, when all hell breaks loose. God has given me this gift of martial arts, and I will be doing doing hand-to-hand -hand combat with demon-possessed men. And I, you know, later I thought, man, that ain't what it's going to be like. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. At Jesus' very birth, he was declared. It was declared there would be peace as a result of his birth and his peace is a gift peace I leave with you my peace I give to you it's a gift which is made possible by the cross for it pleased the father that in him all fullness should dwell by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross. There's a great paradox, isn't it? Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are engaged in a spiritual warfare, not an earthly one. And we should seek peace with God first and foremost. 
from that, we may have peace with our fellow men and our feet will be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel is meant to bring peace between God and man and between man and man and man and woman, I should say, too. And we are ambassadors, therefore, on behalf of Christ, as though God were entreating by us, we beseech you on behalf of Christ, be ye reconciled to God. We are ambassadors of peace now. I'm reminded of the story of the peace child. I don't remember if you know this story, but Don Richardson and his wife went to New Guinea at the time when people were still practicing cannibalism. And the highest achievement of a male Sowie member was to groom in friendship a member perhaps of a allied tribe for years even, all with the intent of getting to the point where he could spring the trap and slay the man and look in his eyes when he's betrayed and killed and then partake of his flesh. And Don Richardson thought, well, maybe I need to retire from this mission field. When he read through the Gospels and they cheered the story of Judas. But the key, of course, was the peace child. They had a ceremony where they could make peace between tribes by one chief giving his child to the other tribe in sacrifice for them to raise. And he used that as the touchstone describing Jesus as the peace child who came to this earth to make peace for humanity. What a revival that took place when they finally accepted the gospel. Just an incredible revival amongst cannibals in Irinjaya, Jaya. Not New Guinea, Irinjaya, as we know it. You may remember the, uh, the famous story of the missionaries who went to, to the Aka, they were called, that was their nickname, Warani. They were considered to be the most violent tribe and most difficult tribe to have any converse with in all of the Amazon jungle. And um, young men, many of them college dropouts, with a plane, small plane, went to make contact with them, and unfortunately they were all martyred and in the process laid down their lives in the cause of Jesus, trying to reach the most unreachable of all people. And as Nate Saint, who was a famous pilot, his sister, uh, Rachel, and here is uh, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, and they would actually return against all odds to bring the gospel to the people who actually, even specifically and personally, had murdered their loved ones. And if this isn't being a peacemaker, I don't know what is. Peace I leave you, not as the world. Not as the world, no. That's supernatural kind of peace. Um, he gives us his peace. We know that he's the prince of peace, but we're also battling the prince of this world who doesn't want peace. You may remember when 
uh, Neville Chamberlain uh, sought to make peace with Hitler. It didn't work too well. And to appease the great appeasement, Churchill said, England has been offered a choice between war and shame, and she has chosen shame and will get war. And um, that was the fact of the matter. But we're in a spiritual warfare, and we dare not compromise with the enemy, not for one nanosecond. Jesus did not compromise in the wilderness when he was on the verge of total starvation. And he was offered all the kingdoms of this world. And he resisted. And um, the devil fled. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The devil hates Christ's peacemakers, and um, their challenge is to hold the ground, hold their spiritual ground, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ where the warfare is really taking place in each one of our minds and hearts and bringing our minds and hearts into captivity and obedience to Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when obedience is fulfilled. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. A great ironic statement, Prince of Peace didn't. He's just speaking rhetorically, of course. He knows that the result of the gospel is going to bring enmity, as it did in my own family, my own brother. When I went Christward, he went and was fellowshipping in witches and war with witches and warlocks in Salem, Massachusetts. And fortunately, now he's just kind of a quasi-blue-eyed native practitioner. But... Uh, it was rough. He wrote me a poison pen letter while I was lying in the hospital with my back broken, telling me to go to hell. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So there will be a lack of peace as a result of us seeking to be ambassadors of peace. This is way, taking way much longer than I anticipated for sure. Please forgive me. <laughs> again and again, MLK said, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. And that's what we are challenged to do. Of course, he took his cue from the revolution, the pacifist revolution that took place in India under the leadership of Gandhi. 
most noteworthy, took place in 1930. The Darasana Salt Works, where 320 men were battered to the ground, some of their, their skulls fractured with clubs. They just kept walking on into the soldiers who kept beating them down, 320 of them, and that was part of what led to Indian independence. You know what? I'm going to skip some of this and move on to the end. Well, well, we'll go with this. You may see two figures there in the distance right there. That's my wife and our granddaughter. You can't see them too well, but this just happens to be the Maida Escarpment, otherwise known as Hacksaw Ridge. And I uh, had the privilege of going there. We have a daughter who joined up in the Navy and ended up getting stationed there. And we went there and by accident, kind of, fortuitous accident, was able to find Hacksaw Ridge. We didn't read Okinawan too well. <laughs> and uh, this is actually probably right there. You can see the sea in the distance, the harbor there. And over this uh, fence right there is where he lowered 75 men that he brought under more heavy mortar fire, artillery fire, even machine gun fire and small weapons fire. And against all odds, God delivered him and them. And he saved them, the famous conscientious cooperator is what he would call himself. He was cooperating in the effort against what appeared, or for all intents and purposes, to be evil. But he was not taking evil upon himself in the process and refused to bear arms. And some of those men were, in essence, his sworn enemies. If you get a chance, watch the documentary. It's quite moving, where they interview some of those men who had persecuted him, and uh, he had saved some of them that day. Well, I'm not going to be able to read that. It doesn't look like. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of the Father in heaven, who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be at peace among yourselves, admonish the disorderly, encourage the faint-hearted, support the weak, be patient toward all, see that no one returns evil for evil, follow that which is good. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, must reign on our hearts. Jesus, he's cost him something. He died in an act of cruel violence to make peace possible, not by bombing the hell out of his enemies, but by taking the full force of every weapon forged in hell upon himself. Peace cost Jesus something. It cost him everything. It may cost you and I. It may cost you your pride. Yes, it may even cost you your life. It is still worth it. It is the only way. It is the only way. 
No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. Let's sing our closing hymn. stand as we sing this beautiful song that just means so much to us after hearing those comforting words. Sweet Lord.
pray. Let's pray. Lord, we, we live in a world that is filled with the lack of peace. And we are often assaulted from all, all uh, avenues in every way possible. We are tempted to fall prey to fear and the lack of peace and the lack of faith and to give up hope. And we know this is what the enemy wants. He wants us to succumb to fear and faithlessness. But you have promised to give us this peace beyond understanding, this love beyond understanding. And we just pray that you, as Prince of Peace, will reign on the thrones of our hearts such that we, yes, indeed, can be your ambassadors of peace, bringing the gospel of peace to all of those whom we come in contact with, to expand your kingdom before your soon return. In your name we pray, amen.